This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Rick Mendius. Rick is a neurologist and meditation teacher and the co-founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Along with Dr. Rick Hansen, Rick Mendius is the co-author of Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, as well as the Sounds True audio learning program, Meditations to Change Your Brain. I spoke with Rick about the anatomy of the brain and an emerging field called neurodharma. Welcome, Rick, to Insights at the Edge. Thank you. Now, you're a neurologist and also someone who's a longtime meditator. And this convergence between neurology and meditation, what people are calling it something like neurodharma? Yeah. What, what, what do we make of this? What is neurodharma? Well, neurodharma for me is, I think, sort of developed as we have gotten in the neurology world more sophisticated in our ability to look at the brain in what we would call higher cortical function states, trying to discern, say, for example, where language is located in a living brain uh, or what parts of the brain tend to be more active during visual-spatial processing or verbal processing or other more sophisticated behavioral things, people began exploring states that occurred in meditation and in uh, contemplative traditions um, and began finding that there's actually physiologic correlates to these states that uh, heretofore were more uh, I say they were poetic descriptions or spiritual tr- uh, descriptions of what it was like to be in, a, in a, a meditative state. And now you can begin to say, well, when one is in a deep, contemplative, focused, attentional state and really concentrated, it turns out that there's an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate, which is in the frontal mid-portion of the brain, on the mesial side of each hemisphere, there's a place in that brain, in the brain that lights up and becomes more active. And so we begin to see that there's an anatomy to this. Uh, We also begin to look at ways perhaps of even inducing states that you otherwise might not think would have an anatomic correlate. For example, uh, the out-of-body experience can be actually induced with a transcranial magnetic stimulator placed over the um, the skull just above and behind the right ear. Okay, so slow down a minute. What's a transcranial magnetic stimulator? Because the brain is an electrical organ, and because electricity and magnetism have this reciprocal relationship in physics, the there's then the anatomic structure of the nervous system are these long um, axons and dendrites. So you have um, basically long uh, electrical cells 
which have a certain particular orientation that can induce a little bit of a magnetic field. So you can both detect the magnetic signal from a bunch of nerve cells firing in unison, and you can reversibly, by stimulating them with a magnetic pulse, you know, like a big electrical, uh, you know, an electrical magnet sitting on the outside of the head, you can reciprocally stimulate these neurons in, to fire off as though they'd been electrically stimulated. So you could take some kind of device, like it would be, what would it look like to stimulate an out-of-body state? It looks, uh, well, it looks a bit like a, uh, a little bit like a, uh, a small C-clamp, so it, pr- it passes a magnetic current from one from one pole of the magnet to the other, and that current goes through the skull, through the brain, activates a particular set of neurons which fire off. And because they fire off, they stimulate their own electrical connections throughout the brain. And the brain has then an electrical experience which it then has to make sense of. It then has to fit what just happened electrically inside the skull into something that the brain can put together as a as a hypothetical construct that fits the stimulus. See, the brain is always doing that. The brain is always running simulations on your on your uh, sensory input. So it is creating a simulation of whatever you're looking at at the moment. It's creating an electrical simulation of whatever you're feeling at the moment. It's creating an electrical simulation of what you are smelling, what you are tasting, what your touches from various portions of your body, coupled with memory, coupled with other kind of autonomic basic drive states. All of this is happening simultaneously. And the brain is always putting that together. And then some one little piece of that is what you are paying attention to at right this second. So it's possible to use a magnetic stimulator to evoke a particular state, to alter whatever is is up for the brain at that moment, to pick out of all the potential electrical circuits and memories and thoughts and fantasies and all kinds of other experiences that it's possible for the brain. It's possible to take a, a transcutaneous magnetic stimulator, pass a magnetic current through the brain, and cause that brain to select a different kind of experience. And it was discovered oh, about oh, five, six years ago when people would uh, put this over the what's called, a piece of cortex called the angular gyrus, which is a uh, a place at the junction of the parietal, temporal, uh, and frontal lobes back, you know, basically in anybody's head, there's one above the right ear and one above the left ear, sort of straight in, about a centimeter, that when they put it over the right, the right angular gyrus, people had an out-of-body experience. They would feel themselves uh, separated from their personal body container up and out somewhere. So this is this is something, of course, has been experienced um, by countless individuals in various different states. You know, some of them uh, pharmacologically or drug induced. Some of them induced by various meditative and contemplative practices. Some of them, perhaps, even there's a sort of an interesting parallel to some of the sense of being separate from oneself and at one from the universe that one gets in in Sufi movement meditation uh, 
Uh, so there are all of these things where it appears that some of the some of the electrical experiences of the brain can be translated into spiritual experiences and vice versa. So there gets to be more in, to kind of bring this back to the initial question of neurodharma, where it, I think it's an incredibly exciting time for both spiritual practitioners and for neuroscientists, where we begin to be able to say what circuits of the brain are helping to support these spiritual experiences. And obviously, in this, there's always the potential error of being reductionistic, of saying, well, if, this, if you're having that experience, you know, if you're six feet over your body looking down, uh, then it's reduced to that's actually the electrical uh, circuit in your right angular gyrus firing off. But it's another question, to, another way to flip this around and ask it from the Dharmic question of, isn't it interesting that for no real clear reason, a central nervous system was equipped to generate a an experience with a definite spiritual, deep, emotional, personal meaning to it that is not necessarily required to... For, you know, for an organism to walk around, drive, get food out of the refrigerator, procreate, and do all the other things that we sort of, you know, think of as just standard normal life. So th- that question could be asked from both directions. For me, the neurodharma piece and the fact that neurology and neuroscience is beginning to really find substrates for these experiences really speaks to faith. It really speaks to the idea that the experiences that are talked about in the, you know, in, in all of the various literatures and all the various uh, spiritual traditions, not just necessarily Buddhism. Uh, Vipassana Buddhism is the, the practice that I am uh, most comfortable in. Uh, but in all the other spiritual traditions as well, there appears to be a basic human anatomy that supports these. And that's then therefore these experiences, which one would not necessarily think to be true, like an out-of-body experience, that there is an anatomy that supports that. So that leads me sort of logically, if the uh, to the cause sort of the following statement leads me logically the following statement, which is that if these supposedly mystical experiences can be shown to have a biologic truth, then the conclusions from these mystical experiences, such as the oneness of all things, uh, the impermanence of all things, the conditionality of all things, and you could just sort of follow how this would lead to various different, in various different traditions, that that those conclusions also have a truth to them that, you know, that before, 100 years ago, scientists of, who were focused purely on the physical or biologic sciences would say, eh, nothing, that's just all poetry. So you're saying that you have a greater sense of faith because if there's an anatomical support for an experience, then the experience is validated in some way in your mind. That's right. And, that, and so the mystical experience of oneness with everything ha- has an anatomy to it, has a physiology to it. Um, that suggests when you when you see this in you know a you know, a practitioner who can validly and reproducibly attain those states 
and then you can picture the physiology and the anatomy of that practitioner and you find that it's reproducible that you find that you know nuns in contemplative uh, in contemplative prayer practice have a very similar uh, neurophysiology that Tibetan monastics in shamatha practice have a very similar uh, neurophysiology you begin to say ah it does two things it, it has both a support for each one of those practices so for you know contemplative prayer has a valid underpinning to say it's actually true and it has those it has this anatomy and the experiences of those people doing that prayer are validated by that anatomy shamatha practice has this anatomy and it validates the reported experiences of the people engaged in shamatha practice so it does two things for me they're, they're, that are kind of fun. It both validates the individual doctrine, or the, the individual practices, and it has this whole ecumenical thing, which is, it's true for all human beings. This is a characteristic of being a 46-chromosome XY species. This is what uh, is the right of our DNA to have this experience. And it basically transcends doctrine. It transcends any one specific religion. It says that there are 10,000 ways up the mountain, but the mountain is the same mountain. Now let's uh, track back for a moment to sure. the fact that we could stimulate a part of the brain and have an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Is there a way that I can create that kind of stimulation uh, without an electrostimulator? I mean, what natural way could I create that same stimulation of that anatomy of the brain? Um, I think those experiences occur uh, somewhat spontaneously in states of deep meditative practice. If you look at the, I think the work of Mayberg, it's about eight, nine years ago, started to, who did this work on uh, functional MRI scans with Tibetan monastics and also with the, uh, I believe it was the Carmelite nuns who were doing the contemplative prayer. When they gained a sort of sense of union, there was this sense of unification with the universe. There was a loss of boundary condition between where my body stops and other space starts. So there was a loss of boundary between self and the universe. And there was also a loss of location. It was impossible. It, it's impossible for people, as they talk about it, it is impossible for people to know where they are. See, right now you have a sense of being in, you know, in the studio, and I have a sense of being here in my office. And we sort of have a sense about the physical relationships of these two offices on the planet. And we kind of do this little you know, right hemispheric thing of figuring out where we are on the map suppose that's to disappear and you were to not be absolutely sure where you are on the map so here we are in this deep meditative state we have lost the boundary between self and the universe and we've lost our localization within the universe the brain takes those two conditions and comes up with a conclusion of one, I am at one with everything, and I am throughout the universe. There is no location of me in, in space and time. 
that's the brain's interpretation of that electrical state because it no longer has a self-object boundary and it no longer has a location in time or space. So it's possible in these very, I think, in these very deep meditative states to, to attain these conditions. And it's interesting that you can take somebody who's not in a deep state of meditation, do a magnetic stimulation, and give them that experience. These were people who were uh, meditatively naive, since they were not seeking these, uh, these states all the time. So, but they would, have, they would have this as a spontaneous event. So that, that's, that says to me that in the, in the meditative practice, you can do these things by getting into very deep states of focused concentration. And then we do this in another way and say, okay, when we just electrically stimulate a certain piece of the brain, something that otherwise takes a good number of hours on the cushion and a great deal of meditative focus and skill to attain occurs. You follow me? I, I do, yeah. Okay. And I think one of the things that I, I kind of want to state here is that the the thing of, of being at one with the universe and the thing of losing the boundary and losing the location, in a sense, it's kind of a yogic attainment. It's not actually the focus of of uh, in my of in my of what in my view is true meditative practice, which is you know the relief of suffering. Yeah. And so, and it's sort of a lot of people get caught up in the epiphenomenon, um, and I think the sort of oneness with everything is to some extent an epiphenomenon. It's something to be realized and then moved past. But it it's helpful to know that that the conditions for that exist because then it says that all these other things which you might otherwise think is impossible as in really potentially being able to reach um, you know enlightenment in this very life kind of concept uh, you know that getting to that getting to that point is possible because the roadmap was laid out and it was said these these little epiphenomenon will happen to you along the path and they are to be observed they're to be noted, they're to be abandoned, and you are to move on. So the whole, so that's where I'm saying that for me, the fact that we can do this uh, in a laboratory setting with people who are non-meditators uh, is very uh, strong support for the path as it is written by people who've gone all the way to the end. Now, Rick, I'm going to take a weird uh, tangent here for a moment, but sure. st- stick with me, which is uh, for people who have had an experience uh with a psychoactive drug like LSD or something like that. Right. They saw unbelievable capacities of their brain in that state, but mm-hmm. it didn't necessarily give us as a culture, quote-unquote, faith that those kinds of open experiences were legitimate. It was just, oh, those are legitimate under the influence of a drug. So I'm curious that this is different now because we're in scientific laboratories, we're testing things, we have printouts. What, what do you think is, is the difference in our kind of collective knowing now because of these developments in neurology? I think because the, a couple of things. One is that these are, um, as opposed to listening to the report of the individual coming back from a pharmacologic condition, where you're dependent on self-report, and you are looking at you know, what it was like to be under the influence of, of lysergic acid diethylamide or mescaline or, or awaska or any of the other pharma, you know, ph- 
pharmacopoeia that we use. We were listening to, to a personal report. Yeah. Personal report, to some extent, is always suspect. What it was like for you. Right. Uh, it's always subject to kind of the, the Rashomon phenomenon of, you know, you're looking at an event from six different people and you get six different stories. And here, we're looking at something that's independent. You know, when you're looking at an, a functional MRI image or when you're looking at the EEG correlates of higher cognitive function that we're now beginning to see in terms of um, coherence studies and you know various the development of various different frequencies and, and synchronicities between certain parts of the brain. When you're looking at that, you can have one person who's the experimental subject and two or three people who are looking and seeing the same set of data. And the two or three people can look at that data and say, yeah, that's there. So you now have relative replicability. You have relative non-invasive uh, mechanisms of observing what's happening in the brain. And you have, you have ways that, for the most part, don't result in significant toxicity. I mean, there are a number of people, when you look at the LSD experience, the number of people not only had bad trips, they developed flashbacks, there's a number of people who developed psychotic processes in this. So there's the other flavor to this, which is not only are you, are you independent, is it the individual uh, report of the experience, but you also have something that clearly has significant downside risk. So is the LSD an experience a statement of the true nature of the brain, or is the LSD experience a statement about what happens to the brain on a poison? And you could make that conclusion from the, uh, that you know, if somebody doesn't come back from the experience that you've completely altered their brain, what you've done is you have poisoned that brain from its pre-drug state to a post-drug state, which may or may not be a successful way to live in the world. Mm -hmm. And a number of the people where you put them in an LSD experience, for example, uh, their, their processes led to hospitalization and to dysfunction, which is totally the opposite of the aim of meditative practice, which is greater clarity, greater understanding, uh, a more effective and compassionate way of dealing with the world. So that, I think, to me, is the different flavor of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very helpful, very clear. Now, you've talked some about what happens to the brain when people are in deep meditation. I'm curious yeah. what we know, what we've discovered in the last decade, decade and a half, about happiness and the brain. And I know this is an area that you've studied quite a bit. Wh what do we know about happiness, and, and how can we increase our happiness from a brain chemistry standpoint? A couple of things come to mind. Um, I think, first off, you, you kind of have to, you actually literally almost have to start with, from a Buddhist frame that you have to under, see through to the truth of suffering or stress, whichever way you want to translate the word dukkha. And letting go of those things which continue to grab you and force you to realize that you are not where you want to be. Um, you know, and realizing that even that des that desire of wanting to be somewhere is something that you have to let go of. So that what I see in the in the neuroscience world is an understanding 
that the brain is always wanting something. Um, there's sort of a way that that I look at it, it goes all the way back down to even the single-celled organism and to the maintenance of a multicellular organism in some, in some living state. Uh, there's a process called homeostasis that occurs in the human body where you basically try to maintain the concentration of electrolytes like sodium and potassium and chloride and calcium and magnesium. You try to maintain the pH chemistry of the blood. You try to maintain the oxygenation of the blood. You try to maintain the hormone levels of various things. It's all, it's all sort of uh, housekeeping, you know, maintenance functions to which a lot of the the organism is always trying to do. The same is true of the single-celled organism, interestingly enough. The, the, the bacterium is always trying to, to move towards sources of nutrients and move away from toxins. It's always trying to, uh, you know, to seek out things and to move away from things. Mm-hmm. And so there's this really basic, basic fundamental law. And if you think about homeostasis, that you're never really in a state of complete rest. You're always tr- trying to push it a little this way to the left, you're trying to push it a little this way to the right, you're trying to lift it up from the floor, you're trying to keep it down from the ceiling, and trying to keep it within the, your normal living space. Then that function is actually accompanied by some kind of you know, fundamental biologic cellular sense of stress. And that's, that for me, looking at that was one of, one of the insights that, that really, so again, was sort of spoke to the uh, the truth of, you know, the first noble truth of suffering being a condition of existence. Basically, you're always you're always trying to balance on the top of a pin and trying to keep yourself from falling off. And so there's this real this real energy that always has to go into maintenance function. And in 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 terms of pursuing happiness, um, that's that's where you start. You say, wow, I need to understand that for me to really experience happiness, the first thing I have to do is to, in a sense, get rid of um, the underlying sense of, of stress or need to, to be elsewhere. And that's accomplished in a number of different ways. Um, first off, we tend to generalize that need into activity after activity after activity. We're always chasing, 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 chasing. And oftentimes we don't let ourselves, even for a brief moment, seize on the fact that right now things are pretty okay. You know, I'm sitting here. I'm warm enough. I'm cool enough. I'm well enough fed. You know, I'm rested enough. Uh, I'm excited enough. I'm relaxed enough for just this right moment. No, that's that's true, Rick. I mean, we're both in a pretty sweet situation right now, and sitting in our chairs having this conversation. Yeah. But aren't yeah. my cells still? moving towards and moving away and experiencing that stress at the cellular level? Yes. But I'm not interpreting it as stress, necessarily? I don't have to? Uh, you don't need to take it and, and to create story about it. There's going to be some fundamental level of, of stress that is just characteristic of being an organism that's alive and breathing. And so... F- you put that together with some of the stuff that my my partner in in, um, in the uh, Wellspring Institute, Rick Hansen, and I have been talking about in our daylongs, which is you know which is based to some extent on some of the major truths of positive psychology. 
it's creating that um, creating that image in your head that things are okay enough to relax that you your organism is adequately primed to take care of itself that you don't need to add a whole lot of anxious story of I got to do this I got to do that I got to go get this other thing I forgot about this I got to do this you know that whole rap rap that goes on in our heads about all the tasks that are done and undone and uh, the problems that we need to solve before tomorrow morning or next week or all these deadlines coming up and there's lots and lots and lots of literature in the psychology and in uh, endocrine function and even in the immune function that speaks to the strength of relaxation into whatever is happening right now as a way to alleviate adding to the to whatever stress is happening just because of your immediate situation the problem with that we ha- that most of us have is that when we run our uh, memory circuits and begin to sort of do repetitive risks on what's wrong and how I'm going to solve it, is that we begin to stimulate the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and the stress response. And when you do that constantly, you actually increase sort of resting serum cortisol levels in your bloodstream. And cortisol, steroid, which is an important hormone, it, it helps us to minimize inflammation, it helps with healing, it uh, decreases the number of bad things that happen when you have to respond to an environmental stress like an infection. So steroids are useful, but chronic um, unremitting stress and unremitting production of cortisol and elevated cortisol levels in the blood actually is toxic to neurons. You can see this best in people, for example, who either have PTSD or who have been uh, or who have been the victims of torture, where you actually see hippocampal atrophy. And when we look at MRI studies going back 10, 15 years of people who have been in various kinds of horrific experiences, and you look at the hippocampus in their temporal lobes, you can see that it's shrunk. Now, the hippocampus is important because that's basically your resting working memory. That's kind of like your your brain's very own RAM, you know, your random access memory. That's how you get things up in working memory to be able to process them. So, And when you see visible atrophy on an MRI scan, you're talking about the loss of millions of neurons. Hmm. Uh, so this constant repetitive activation of the, H, uh, the HPA axis hypothalamic pituitary adrenal. The constant uh, activation of this HPA axis is actually toxic to brain. So you reverse engineer it from the standpoint of how you apply this um, in your own life as a way to be happier. You say, okay, I need to stop telling story. I need to stop repetitively traumatizing myself with the stress of you know, my deadlines, the stress of my finances, the stress of the loss of my uh, my loved ones, or, you know, the anger that I'm experiencing, or, you know, all of these other different things. And just by creating space where it's okay for those things to just be and not to have to do anything about it, you can literally save yourself the loss of millions upon millions of neurons 
and over time increase your ability to function. Let's just talk about that for a moment. Do I have a set amount of neurons? I mean, do I care about losing them? Can I make new ones? Uh, the the truth on that one, we you know we know that we used to think that the brain that at the moment of birth you had all the neurons you were going to get, and that was it. And we know uh, for certain that there are areas in the brain where there is still continues to be uh, new neurons formed over a period of time. And one of the areas is the the hippocampus, which they're called the granule cells, uh, appear to to reproduce, and we make new ones over a period of time. Interestingly enough, we appear to turn these cells over, perhaps on the order of about every seven years, which, you know, we have this cultural thing about the seven-year itch and sort of developmental changes that happen on sort of a seven- to ten-year cycle, you know, throughout our life, and that may have some relationship with how these neurons that are responsible for how I'm remembering things change over. But we don't replace these neurons as fast as we lose them. So there is, over your lifetime, a, a loss of, uh, of neuronal numbers and of the processes of each individual neuron. And that actually is where I think the, the, the modern neuroimaging shows that there's completely different uh, benefit to meditation. When you do a task, you tend to increase the amount and volume of brain tissue that's devoted to that task. The numbers of cortical neurons in uh, concert pianists that are devoted to the control and uh, programming of the sequence of activation of the muscles that move the fingers. The amount of cortical real estate in the brain that's devoted to that activity in, in concert pianists is tremendously greater, uh, certainly, than in me, because I can do chopsticks and that's about it. But so concert pianists have a lot more uh, versatility in the kinds of quality of finger movements that they can make in the context of playing the piano. So we, we take that piece, that that which you pay attention to, that which you discipline yourself to do, that which you re, uh, continue to come back to, you're, you get more neuronal real estate devoted to that, and a greater thickening in numbers of, of connections and interconnections between neurons. You get a great proliferation of what we call the dendrites in the uh, in the big motor neurons and interneurons that connect each other up so that there's a lot more subtlety in the communication between all these different levels of, of cells. When you look at the, at the scans of people like that, there is, over time, a thickening of the cortex of the brain in these regions. And there is, in, uh, in meditators, in a number of different areas in the brain, insular cortex, parietal lobe, temporal lobe, and frontal lobe, there is thickening of the cortical rim. Now, that's where, those, that's where nerve cells and the dendrites exist. Mm -hmm. the, the white matter of the brain is where all the big wires that go from one piece of the brain to another piece of the brain occur. But where all the connectivity action is, is in the gray matter. That's where all the electrical conversations happen between, uh, between nerve cell and nerve cell. And so for there to be a thickening in that cortex means that there's a lot more uh, processing going on. 
people who are long-term meditators tend to have you know, as much as a millimeter thicker cortex in many of these regions. That's immense. I mean, that is just an incredible uh, amount of increased connectivity and subtlety in the performance of these, of these brains in their ability to, say, to, to make fine distinctions. Interestingly, if you talk to some of the monastics who, you know, who spend lots and lots of time in meditation, lots and lots of time in terms of really disciplining their lives to be on the path, they start to get be, be much more sensitive to fine distinctions in what's right speech and what's not right speech, to what's right intention and what's not right intention. And they, they describe that it's you know, that it's very easy to eliminate some of the really gross things. You know, it's not okay to rob, murder, steal, and pillage. But it, as they get further, further into it, they discover that it's you have to do some real subtle stuff. It's not okay to even think minimally disparagingly of your associate, because it, you can, they then begin to see how this leads to, you know, incorrect speech, incorrect action, with bad consequences. And this is sort of a corollary of that, that be, you begin to see as you devote your, your, your brain to these practices, you begin to get, be able to get subtler and subtler and subtler the ability to distinguish between kinds of thoughts, kinds of actions, kinds of perceptions, um, kinds of uh, simulations, what is, what is real, what is not. And so there's a whole development of discipline that's associated with thickening of the areas of the, of the brain. So there's actually, a tr I think, a tremendous way in which there's a much greater health in the brains of people who are really disciplined in a spiritual path that over time, as they really get into, you know, into these practices, particularly, I think, of mindfulness and compassion, you know, based in a way of getting around the HP axis with uh, what I would say would be equanimity practice, the sort of mindfulness, compassion. No, no, what did you What did you mean, getting around the HP axis? I lost you there. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going back to our previous conversation about the stress factor. Yeah. Of um, you know, when you're trying to alleviate suffering. Yeah. You know, if you're just dealing with that in your own personal space, it's it's getting more space around the around the story. And most of that is actually, if you think about it, is is equanimity. You know, this is just the way it is. And okay, I I have I have preferences for the way things are, but you know, the and I have some needs like oxygen, water, food, but my wants are maybe not necessarily something I want to cling to if I find that those wants generate suffering. So. That's basically getting to that is really focusing on equanimity. Is really focusing on um, you know on releasing clutching at wanting to be someplace else. And so anyway, people who practice the sort of uh, uh, you know mindfulness and compassion and equanimity, I think the bottom line for my whole last few minutes has been I think these people are headed in a way of really optimizing their brain health, and ultimately bring us back to one of your, I think, two or three questions ago. Ultimately, this is how you generate happiness. This is how you, you generate a state of, of actually very, very profound happiness. What I'm curious about is what does a happy brain look like? 
I mean, one thing you've said is that I wouldn't be generating a lot of unnecessary cortisol, which would be destroying right. neurons. But what what else would a happy brain look like? Wow, I'm not sure I could make a real good button. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what parts of my brain would be easily lit up? You know, what what kinds of I think chemistry? If I if if I had to reach, and there's there, I don't think there's a whole lot of science for me to to say on this one because I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure of this, but. If I were to speculate, I would say a, a happy brain would have relative quiescence in the amygdala, which are two areas in the front of the temporal lobes, one on the left and one on the right, and a relative increased activity in the uh, in the anterior cingulate area of the brain and in the insula, and that these would be because what, what is the insula? I'll get to that in a second. Okay. The amygdala, which is the Latin word for almond, it's an almond-shaped structure. It's at the front, inside end of the temporal lobes. There's one on the left and the one on the right. This is a structure that's really involved in attaching emotional affect to memory. When you have an experience, the emotional valence of that experience, positive, negative, or neutral, is laying down on top on on top of that uh, experience by activity in the amygdala, and the amygdala is extraordinarily wired. Perhaps two thirds, seventy percent of it or so, is wired for negative statements. This is awful. This is evil. This is nasty. I need to avoid this. I need to run away from this. I need to be angry about this. And only about thirty percent. This is wonderful. This is great. I like this. So the, the amygdala tends to be a lot more of a, neg- of a negative um, labeling for experience. There's a real good evolutionary reason for that, which is that if you jump from a curved, you know, this is the old classic statement, if you jump from a curved uh, shape on the trail and you jump the other way and it turns out to be a stick, then everybody laughs and has a good time. If it turns out to be a snake, then you then you survive to carry on, procreate, and have further offspring, and you know, and have a greater proportion of your of the of your chromosomal DNA in subsequent generations. Um, so that it, it actually in a in the world in which we evolved as a species, it was much more important to note the negatives, real quick, real time now, than it was necessarily to to note the positives because the positives might be there just a little bit longer. You could actually look and enjoy and inspect them before you 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 took them. Whereas, you know, the snake or the leopard gets you, you're gone. So the amygdala is really is really wired for, for negative stuff. And so a happy brain would tend to have less amygdala activation. Um, the second thing is that a happy brain would tend to have I think more uh, the anterior cingulate would be more active than the rest than than the rest of the frontal lobes because that's sort of the area is kind of the witness. It's just sort of watching what things are happening, and the the anterior cingulate is kind of the monitoring for how well you're on task, and it's run it it has a reward circuit down into the brainstem that's run on norepinephrine. 
the norepinephrine experience is one of the main neurochemicals in the brain. The norepinephrine experience is sort of a bright, alert, and cheerful quality. So a sort of brightening of the mind that, that happens when norepinephrine is happening. And then the insula, to go back to the third piece, is the area that's sort of the cortical representation of internal states. And it is the, it's also the area where I think we have maybe not mirror neurons, because we're not really sure if mirror neurons truly exist in humans, but I think we have mirror neuron circuits. And these are circuits that will light up when we observe somebody else doing a an activity, and they are neurons that also participate when we do that activity. So if you see somebody throwing a ball, the mirror neuron neuron circuits in your brain will be those that are also involved when you throw a ball. Once we see somebody smiling happily at us, those mirror neuron circuits are also activated during periods when we smile happily. So there's a fundamental cortical construct for an empathic understanding, a true understanding in me of what you are experiencing. And so I think a happy brain will tend to have more of that sense of, of empathy up and active. And then there's this other really interesting thing, which is if you look at which portions of the brain tend to be happier, it turns out interestingly that the left frontal lobe is actually a fairly happy place. When you have a stroke that involves the left frontal lobe, now I'm going to talk in classically in a right-handed individual for whom language is in the left hemisphere. When you have a stroke involving the left frontal lobe, these people tend to have a much more disastrous sense of what's happened than people who have strokes in the right frontal lobe. People who have strokes in the right frontal lobe tend to actually be relatively, you know, comfortable with events, even if they have equal motor disability. They're able to overcome it. They think back to that. What you've taken out is a piece of brain. The piece of brain that's gone is not what's running the show at that point. It's the piece of brain that remains. So somebody with a le- whose left frontal lobe is tending to be running more of the frontal lobe actions, you know, the planning and thinking about things. Somebody who has a left, uh, whose left frontal lobe is running, it tends to be a little bit more content with events than somebody whose right frontal lobe is is running things. So you're going to have a little bit more left frontal activation in terms of what portions of the brain are running in a happier person, which is in contradistinction with what was out in the popular literature, you know, for the last 20 years or so, you're drawing with the right side of the brain and somehow the right side of the brain was the more gestaltic and happier. It turns out that the right side of the brain is kind of morose when that's what's up and running. Well, this is a lot of um, information for my little brain to absorb, but the the one thing that I am uh, hooking onto here is the idea that in our amygdala, we are uh, evolutionarily programmed to have a bias towards negativity. Right. That makes sense to me. I'm I'm always looking at the negative and everything. How, How do I interrupt that? repetitive practice and realizing that that's not necessarily the story. I think the the other piece for me in the in the in the neuro in sort of the neurodharma thing and really a statement of faith is that if you look at how the brain activates to a stimulus 
in the wheel of dependent inter- origination, there's this whole thing about contact, feeling, craving. That there is the contact between the the environment and the the organism or the individual. There is the arising of a feeling in relationship to that contact, and then from that feeling, craving arises. You know, aversion, craving, or avoidance, or what, or whatever. And if you watch what happens anatomically, and, and as the as a stimulus moves through the um, moves through the central nervous system, um, you can actually see that there is a substrate for this. So let's go back to the amygdala and to visual stimuli. When you, and that experience of the, of the snake, it turns out that you will have um, a that there will be emotional reactivity to a visual stimulus that will arise before the cortex has processed the stimulus to decide what it actually is. Before you have identified the shape and labeled it and called it a name, those are several different things. So what happens, we think, is that some of the electrical fibers that are headed back from the eyeball through the optic nerve and then headed back to the occipital lobe in the back of your head to be processed into vision, some of those fibers have collaterals that bypass into the amygdala. So that if this is a a threatened stimulus or if this is a, uh, a target stimulus of opportunity, that wiring to jump away or to jump toward, that wiring begins to be prepared to act because the amygdala has identified this as a fear response. It's beginning to send out an alarm, and that's going up to the cortex and then beginning to be acted on. And that happens almost before one is cortically aware of what this thing is, what this visual stimulus is that's just been presented. And there are various different ways that this has been identified in terms of tachistoscopically presenting a visual stimulus that's happening so brief it can't be named, and yet you still have an emotional response to it. Uh, things like that. They've done various different ways of of looking at this at this anatomy and kind of parsing it out. So how does one go and reverse engineer this so that you could be happier? Yeah. I think it's by continually developing a conditional frame of mind so that you, you're, you're saying, okay, this appears to be so, let me check it out. This appears to be so, let me check it out. As an emotional response begins to arise, you say, you develop the habit of, let me check out why that's happening. What's going on here that's causing this to arise? So it, it's, it's basically you know, a classic mindfulness practice, dissecting out what, while the emotions are arising, why they are arising, what's the flavor of them, what other circuits, are, why is this happening in my knee at this point in time, what's going on in my left hand, what's the smell about this, How, how's my hair, you know, this whole kind of dissection practice that we begin to do as we start to meditate. And as you do that and you form that habit, then as each stimulus, as each emotional uh, thing arises, the brain habitually says, let me dissect this out and find out if this is true. If this is true, what are the causes and conditions that led this to arise at this moment in time in me? And furthermore, what are the various opportunities that present themselves for action here 
to respond to the stimulus in line with my major moral and ethical precepts. Most of the time in our mundane lives, up until the time we undertake a spiritual practice or a meditative practice, we really, the, the old classic cliche, we live our lives by ready, fire, aim. So that we have all, we've already responded before we try to figure out what the hell target we're trying to shoot at. And what I think the what you can do to di- to disconnect the amygdala is habitually go back in there and put in aim, put in aim, put in aim, and then put in ready question, ready question, ready question. You see, you sort of back engineer the habit, you reverse engineer the habit, so that you begin to be more sensitive to the moment of the arising of the emotion, so that you can then engage the habitual reflection so that you can bring yourself to analyze the data as they're presenting so that you can just ask yourself, is this true? And if so, do I need to do anything about it? Mm-hmm. And that will ultimately, it may not necessarily uh, disconnect the amygdala. I'm not sure you want to disconnect the amygdala. Sometimes that curved shadow on the on the path is a snake. And you need to know it's a snake. You know, but you need not necessarily jump off the cliff to avoid the snake. So you can say, oh, oh, what is this? Okay. And just as in any particular cognitive function, by continual, continual use, you can develop a, a stronger and stronger habitual ability to be more precise in your distinctions about what's happening in your life and to be you know, more compassionate and less attached to self in regard in relationship to what's happening in your life and this ultimately makes you happier and I think it, it I think there is a uh, fundamental neuroanatomy under there in that the brain is handling amygdala input in a different way it learns that a discharge from the amygdala needs to bring lots of cortical resources to bear to be very precise about what one is perceiving uh, and to other cortical resources to be very precise in terms of what one's action. And that there's literally a neuroanatomy wiring to that, which can be practiced and practiced and practiced. I think the, thought, the other thought that comes to mind with me at this point is the whole concept of about 10,000 hours, that to be a world-class anything takes about 10,000 hours in terms of, you know, when they, when they look at, at athletes, when they look at pianists, well, when, you know, and, uh, and other musicians, when they look at people who are meditative adepts, um, you know, and 10,000 hours, if you think about it, you know, 1,000 hours is about two and a half to three hours a day for a year. Mm-hmm. So you're talking 10 years to two and a half to three, uh, to three hours a day to be a world-class Meditator number this this makes sense because a number of the people that they were uh, testing you know Mayberg and these other people who are looking at the really um, world class meditators the the gurus and the very adept monastics when you look when you kind of get the number of hours that these people have spent on the cushion you know twenty thousand fifty thousand seventy thousand lifetime meditative hours that's an immense amount of time spent perfecting this. You're saying that at, at the point of approximately 10,000 hours, something special happens in the brain? Well, as of the present time, stuff, something that we can distinguish 
in terms of these, even the, our present imaging systems for the brain are still relatively gross. They're still not really telling us what's happening, you know, below maybe a few millimeters of uh, volumes of tissue. You know, they're not telling us what's happening in small numbers of neurons. They're telling us what's happening in millions of neurons acting together. So we're not talking about a whole lot of fine detail. We're still, you know, it's like looking at the map of the United States from, uh, from 20,000 miles. You're not down at 100 feet above the street. You're way up there, and you're still able to say that, well, there are mountains, there are rivers, there's this, there's that. We're still really in our, I think neuroscience is still really in, maybe not its infants in the infancy, but certainly in its mid to late childhood in terms of our ability to understand how this whole system comes together. Uh, and I think we will get further and further and further adapt in doing this as neuroscience gets more better tools, more integrated tools, begins to expand on what we presently know and develop better paradigms for how this, this stuff works. The people that they have used for the present tests that we have are these people who've had tens of thousands of hours of practice. And that creates the kind of changes that we can see you know, with the testing that we have. Mm-hmm. Now, let me go back because we also know, know another couple of things about how, the, ner- how this, the human body functions, and I think there's a parallel here. There's no classic cliche called the 80-20 rule, that 80% of what you need to do takes 20% of your effort. The other 20% of what you need to do takes 80% of your effort. If you're trying to do aerobic conditioning of your heart, the first 20% of your exercise program, you know, in terms of your, uh, say you want to run a marathon, the amount of conditioning that you really need to do to run a marathon, about 80% of that will happen 20% into your training program. The other 80% of your training program is getting that other 20%. You actually, in terms of long-term health effects, that 80% that you get with minimal effort is, is enough to give you an extra you know, several years of life from the standpoint of minimizing your your heart attacks risk or your stroke risk or your peripheral vascular disease. As a, you know, as a physician and neurologist, when I tell people to go out and get some exercise to minimize their stroke risk, I talk about a half hour a day. I mean, I'm not telling them to go out and do, you know, four hours of biking every day or, you know, develop their ability to run for four straight hours. I'm telling them to go out and walk at a relatively vigorous pace for, you know, for 30 minutes. That's 20% of what it would take to run a marathon. Mm-hmm. But it's got 80% of the health benefit in it. So I think I want to take that analogy and bring it back to sort of a neurodharma perspective that I think that you get a long way down the path with what is a relatively small use of time. Uh, that you know, there, there is this sort of uh, wonderful, miraculous way that our brains can actually be directed in a positive spiritual direction without requiring the entire culture to go into a monastery. And I think that that's the, that's the, 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 the bottom line in all this, is that it is quite possible to, to engage in these practices as a householder, as somebody who has a mortgage, um, a tax bill, children, a spouse, you know, in-laws, you know, parents. Let's certainly hope so. 
Yeah, right. That the householder path has validity, and that in in pursuing the same practices, in what time and space that's available to a householder with all of the other demands on their lives, has tremendous benefits for themselves. Now, Rick, do we know anything from neurodharma studies about the difference between male and female brains, especially in relationship to the spiritual path, spiritual practice? Um, not enough to make really great conclusions, except perhaps for one. There is such a tremendous overlap that you could even have the populations have statistically significant differences in the in the levels of function in a certain way, and yet have tremendous populations of males who would really fit in the female processing realm and tremendous number of females that would fit in the male processing realm. So I think that we really, really love to hunt for these dichotic divisions, you know, of of stuff because it's it's an easy way for us to divide the world into black and white into you know the top and bottom male and female uh, positive negative but the 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 truth is much grayer and much more individual and so it's it's probably not useful for any one individual uh, to to define a male spiritual path versus a female spiritual path, even give the fact that the male and female energy is tremendously important in, you know, in that attainment. Anybody who's looked at Tantra understands that. You know, the whole masculine-feminine diet and the whole influence of, of sexuality in a non-procreative sense, but just the whole way in which male and female uh, see the world and process the world adds a lot of richness to it. But the problem is, is that any one individual going from a statistical difference of populations to any one individual person um, is going to be fraught with error because the male genetic influence, for example, will find itself inside genes that for personality structure that come from his mother so that and the female correspondingly will find her hormonal influences and the cycle of menstruation and the menarche and menopause and all the rest of the very complicated things that happen there, we'll find that encased inside a nervous system which was significantly constructed from genes that came from not only her father, but her mother's father. So which genes are responsible and how those manifest in the nerve structures, um, I think becomes very, 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 very difficult to, to parse out. And so most of these conclusions have to be said that this appears to be the differences we can discern. So that, with that caveat at the beginning, I think it's, you know, it's probably safe to say that males will tend to be much more linear in their approach, and females will tend to be much more cyclical and encompassing. Mostly because if you go back to the to the uh, the endocrinologic effects, the secretion of testosterone uh, and whatever influence that has on the male brain is a major increase during puberty and then a gradual decline down through adulthood into old age, and that I think has a very slow pattern to it, 
over time. Human beings are not very good at detecting subtle, small changes. So, you know, as a 59-year-old male, I can look back and say, you know, I don't have the same um, sexual thoughts every 30 seconds that I had when I was 20. You know, but so I can see the decline and I can feel the emotional change in terms of how I function over time. I think most most males in in middle age and, and geriatric populations would be able to personally reflect and report that similar kind of sense about how things kind of gradually decline. I think for women, there's much, there's a much different way in which the emotions kind of flow through their lives and would therefore flow through their spiritual practice. Um, estrogen is a very excitatory hormone to the brain. Progesterone is a relatively sedating hormone to the brain. There are tremendous estrogen receptors in the hippocampus, in this memory organ. So there's, to some extent, a cyclic variability in memory functions as a result of the cycles during menstruation, including uh, the premenstrual tension syndrome and then subsequently the increase in estrogen for the first 12 to 14 days, a spike in estrogen and progesterone at the time of ovulation, um, a relative progesterone production uh, over estrogen in the last half of the cycle, and then a drop in both estrogen and progesterone and a reversal from a progesterone to an estrogen chemical bath, if you will, immediately prior to menstruation. That happens every you know every 28 days as we know and so i think there's there's a the much more of a sense of flexibility for women because they they literally have a flexibility in how their nervous system is processing information based on these underlying hormonal states so i think from spirituality from the spirituality and spiritual practice standpoint you know i my flavor in the women that I've heard give Dharma talks is that they, they, they tend to be more inclusive in more of a, all of the different kinds of ways that the world could be, and then the the approach for for most of the male teachers that tended to have, uh, you know, sort of a sort of Manjushri cutting through to the truth, um, you know, kind of. Uh, if you pardon the term, kind of a macho-ness to the, um, to the practice, that it really needs a discipline, discipline, discipline. Mm-hmm. Well, now here in the uh, spirit of inclusiveness, yeah. I could imagine someone listening to our conversation, and there's been a tremendous emphasis on how meditation uh, improves brain functioning and happiness. And I'm imagining somebody listening who says, you know, I'm just not drawn to meditation. There's got to be some way for me, isn't there? Um, that's going to knock me off my, my pedestal here. I'll have to think about this one. Um, yeah, I tend to be thinking, since, this, since for me, you know, we're, talk, we're talking about a spiritual path, I tend to think of meditation as, as a way. Um, most of the spiritual practices, which I think bring out these pieces, involve some form of meditation. So I think for me, I would include prayer in meditation. There also is the interesting thing that repetitive activities like drumming, um, I think walking practice, I even think there's a way that you can actually think of running as a meditation, cycling as a meditation. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that this has to be cushion time, 
you know, that this many hours sitting on a zafu. But I think that there are ways in which any activity which uh, allows you, and maybe the, the function of this behind this, allows you to witness something going on. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. So that, for, you know, for example, running, when people talk about running in the runner's high, I think it's not just the endorphins that happen, but there's also uh, a piece where they're just witnessing their body moving, you know, step, 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 breathe, you know, and, and that rhythm begins to take over. They get into the rhythm, and then they're just witnessing themselves being in the rhythm. That may actually have side benefits that are very, very, very similar to meditation practice. Meditation works for me because, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a guy who spends his entire life thinking about brains, and so in thinking about the diseases that happen in brains. And so thinking for me is my door in. But it may not necessarily be true for somebody who's not as enamored of thinking as I am, mm-hmm. um, and who needs another path in. So I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily feel that that meditation is the be all and end all. But I think that there are there are ways, and I think without too much stretching of what I've been saying about meditation practice, one could take the same thing and expand it to you know exercise as a practice or you know, other kinds of things. There probably also is in the in the service practice in in seva in the Hindu in the Hindu guru tradition of working for the guru or in essentially the abandoning of the self and doing and doing things um, so for example in running or working at a food bank or volunteering some time at a food bank to make sure that the hungry are fed in doing these things which really are no longer about um, being acquisitive for self and not in in giving to others as a practice that in that in that piece there which is not a meditation necessarily it could be done as meditation but not as meditation necessarily but in that process of wrestling with this is the other human being, this is myself, I am giving of my time and effort to this person, and I'm struggling with the fact that, hey, maybe I'm hungry, but it's not my time to eat, it's their time to eat. Um, you know, I'm tired, but I still have people to feed, we're still in the line. You know, those, kind, those kinds of things. In wrestling with that, there's a, I think there's the developing of, of a similar kind of awareness of the dissolution of the boundary between self and other. Mm-hmm. Very good, very helpful. One final question, Rick. You mentioned that this whole field of neurodharma, we could say, is you know a, like a child or something like that. Clearly, mm-hmm. not a, a mature field at all. And what I'm curious about is, what do you see on the horizon? What kinds of inquiries are we asking? What kinds of research do you see? You know, where do you think we'll be in the next five to ten years? I think we're actually on the boundary of beginning to talk about a Western practice of meditation that is grounded in our, I'll use the phrase, our religion of science, that is going to draw from the Eastern practices those things which appear to make sense in the context of Western, previously secular, science. 
and we're going to be able to say that for health and happiness and well-being of the individual and of the community, the following practices would be best. I think that's part, you know, that's where we're going to be going. And I think we will have neurochemical evidence for it. I think we'll have neuroanatomic and neurophysiologic evidence for it. I think we'll have electrical evidence for it. And I think we'll begin to understand some of the states um, that were observed and reported about in the Eastern traditions and in, even in the Christian tradition, the Christian mystic tradition, uh, as Father Thomas Keating has gone and explored, I think we'll be able to understand that these previous self-reported states have anatomic corollaries, and therefore that the positive benefits of being a you know, a Father Thomas Keating or the positive benefits of being a Buddha or being one of the Arahants uh, or being in uh, a number of other uh, Christian and Hindu and, uh, and Muslim and Jewish mystics, that these are possible for us and that it's possible for us by perhaps even by doing certain personality testing and doing perhaps even some genetic testing you might be able to understand and we might be able to pick out for you as an individual the kinds of practices that would best move you the furthest down the road toward enlightenment. Because I, I, I think that some of this is going to have a basis in what kind of serotonin receptors you have. Some of this is going to have a basis in your dopamine receptors, your endorphin receptors, uh, your particular... Uh, qualities of, of intellect, um, your psychosocial background, the kind of community and family that you grew up in. And I think there will be able, there will start to get ways that you'll begin to get a sense of, you know, I don't need to do uh, shamatha practice. It won't work for me. I should do metta practice, or I should do Christian contemplative prayer practice, or I should engage in, in uh, in Sufism and in movement meditation. I should do yoga. I should do... You know, there will be ways that we will begin to start to parse this out. Because if you go back and you look at the monastic traditions, you know, for example, in Buddhism, 2,500-year tradition of really scientific observations. You know, everybody sat for a certain number of hours and then describe their experiences. Did you feel that? Did you feel that? Oh, you saw that? Ah, this, that, the other. And this gets written down time after time after time. And it, it's actually, I think the, the, the Buddhist tradition of, of spiritual practice can be looked at in many ways as a scientific method of internal contemplation and its, uh, its successes, its um, possible risks, and its benefits looking, you know, going backward. And I think we'll be able to do the same thing, adding in uh, genetics and neurochemistry and uh, the fruits of psychological analysis and be able to begin to, you know, be able to say, say, for example, at age 20, that you don't need to go wandering in the desert for 30 years. You can go over here and do this practice and be much more effective at age 30 than you would otherwise be. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rick. Really helpful. Wonderful to hear from someone with your kind of training. Oh, thank you. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this interview, you may be interested 
in a new online course on mindfulness and the brain, starting on October 6th. It's long been a dream of mine for Sounds True to offer listeners a live chance to interact with their favorite Sounds True authors. And now, beginning on October 6th, we have Dr. Dan Siegel, who is an expert in interpersonal neurobiology, joining up with Buddhist meditation teacher Jack Cornfield for an online course where you can actually earn continuing education credits. The course is called Mindfulness and the Brain. And if you're interested in learning more, check it out at soundstrue.com slash courses. That's soundstrue.com backslash courses.